Close Horse is brought to you with support from the following sustainable brands. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycle clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room all while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the Party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at Late to the Party People. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Gabriella Antonis is a visual artist and an ethical trade fashion designer. But Gabriella is also a radical feminist micro-business. She's the one-woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the earth needs. The one-woman band to help you build your own brand. She can take your fashion line from just a concept and do your sketches, pattern making, grading, sourcing, cutting, and sewing. The second option is for those who aren't trying to start a business and who just want ethical garments. Gabriella Antonis will create custom made-to-measure garments just for you. Her goal is to help help one person of any size at a time, including beyond size 40. To inquire about this serendipitous intersectional offering of either concept, DM her on Instagram to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Gabriella Antonis. And that's Gabriella with one L. Gotta get that spelling right. Dylan Page is an online clothing and lifestyle brand based out of St. Louis, Missouri. Our products are chosen with intention for the conscious community. Everything we carry is animal-friendly, ethically made, sustainably sourced, and cruelty-free. Dylan Page is for those who never stop questioning where something comes from. We know that personal experience dictates what's sustainable for you, and we are here to help guide and support you to make choices that fit your needs. Check us out at dylanpage.com and find us on Instagram at dylanpagelifeandstyle. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Find us on Instagram at Salt Hats. Karen Kinney Studio. Located in western Massachusetts, Karen specializes in handcrafted earrings from found, upcycled, and repurposed fabrics, as well as other eco-friendly curios, all with a hint of nostalgia, a dollop of whimsy, a dash of color, and 100% fun. Karen is an artist slash designer who believes the materials we use matter. See more on Instagram at Karen Kinney Studio or online at www.cKinney.com. Gentle Vibes Vintage. 
We are purveyors of polyester and psychedelic relics. We encourage experimentation and play, not only in your wardrobe, but in your home too. We have thousands of killer vintage pieces ready for their next adventure. See them all on Instagram at Gentle Vibes Vintage. Thumbprint is Detroit's only fair trade marketplace located in the historic Eastern Market. Our small business specializes in products handmade by empowered women in South Africa, making a living wage, creating things they love like hand-painted candles and ceramics. We also carry a curated assortment of sustainable and natural locally made goods. Thumbprint is a great gift destination for both the special people in your life and for yourself. Browse our online store at thumbprintdetroit.com and find us on Instagram at thumbprintdetroit. Blank Cass, or Blanket Coats by Cass, is focused on restoring, renewing, and reviving the history held within vintage and heirloom textiles. By embodying the love, craft, and energy that is original to each vintage textile as I transfer it into a new garment, I hope we can reteach ourselves to care for and mend what we have and make it last. Blank Cass lives on Instagram at blank underscore Cass, and a website will be launched soon at blankcass.com. Located in Whistler, Canada, Velvet Underground is a velvet jungle full of vintage and secondhand clothing, plants, a vegan cafe, and lots of rad products from other small sustainable businesses. Our mission is to create a brand and community dedicated to promoting self-expression, as well as educating and inspiring a more sustainable and conscious lifestyle, both for the people and the planet. Find us on Instagram at shop underscore velvet underground or online at www.shopvelvetunderground.com. St. Evans is a New York City-based vintage shop that is dedicated to bringing you those special pieces you'll reach for again and again. More than just a store, St. Evans is dedicated to sharing the stories and history behind the garments. 10% of all sales are donated to a different charitable organization each month. For the month of November, St. Evans is supporting Native Women Lead, an organization dedicated to revolutionizing systems and inspiring innovation by investing in Native women in business and leadership. New Vintage is released every Thursday at wearsaintevens.com with previews of new pieces and more brought to you on Instagram at where underscore st dot evens. That's where St. Evans. Country Feedback is a mom-and-pop record shop in Tarboro, North Carolina. They specialize in used rock, country, and soul, and offer affordable vintage clothing and housewares. Do you have used records you want to sell? Country Feedback wants to buy them. Find us on Instagram at Country Feedback Vintage and Vinyl, or head down east and visit our brick and mortar. All are welcome at this inclusive and family-friendly record shop in the country. Republica Unicornia Yarns, handmade yarn and notions for the color obsessed, made with love and some swearing in fabulous Atlanta, Georgia by head yarn wench Kathleen. Get ready for rainbows with a side of giving a damn. Republica Unicornia is all about making your own magic using small batch, responsibly sourced, hand dyed yarns and thoughtfully made notions. 
slow fashion all the way down and discover the joy of creating your very own beautiful hand-knit, crocheted, or woven pieces. Find us on Instagram at republica underscore unicornia underscore yarns and at www.republicaunicornia.com. Picnicwear, a slow fashion brand ethically made by hand from vintage and dead stock materials, most notably vintage towels. Founder Danny has worked in the industry as a fashion designer for over 10 years, but started Picnicwear in response to her dissatisfaction with the industry's shortcomings. Picnicwear recently moved to rural North Carolina, where all their sewing and accessories are now designed and cut, but the majority of their sewing is done by skilled garment workers in New York City. Their customers take comfort in knowing that all their sewists are paid well above New York City minimum wage. Picnicwear offers minimal waste and maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Welcome to Clothes Horse, the podcast that is currently recording with not one, not two, but three cats in the room. Yes, I know you're so jealous. <laughs> I'm your host, Amanda. This is episode 107, and I'm so excited about today's super special guest. It's Kathleen, the owner, the operator, the yarn wench, if you will, and she will, behind Republica Unicornia, which sells hand-dyed yarn and notions for the color-obsessed. Kathleen reached out to me with an innocent, unrelated question, and I said, hey, so you make yarn? Um, well, will you be a guest on the show? Because I've been wanting to do an episode about craft stuff. So she's here. She said yes. It only took a little bit of arm twisting. <laughs> We're going to talk about the therapeutic benefits of crafting. I love talking about that. It's something I truly believe in. We're going to talk about the fight for progress over perfection. Another thing I love to talk about. And we're going to talk about how we can rein in our natural desire to hoard craft supplies. I know, I know a lot of you can relate to that. Don't worry, we're going to talk about that too. And you'll get to hear Kathleen's journey to Yarn Wench. Spoiler alert, it turns out that she didn't crawl out of the womb with a skein of yarn in her hand. I know you thought that. I thought that. It turns out we're wrong. And I just, I'm so excited for you to get to know Kathleen. Before that, we're going to listen to not one, but two audio essays from small business owners in our community. This is a jam-packed episode, so you won't be hearing too much from me until the end. But before we jump into all of that, gosh, there's just so much in this episode, let's take a moment to thank some of our newest Patreon supporters. First, we have Colleen Sirocco of Detroit, Michigan, aka My Vintage Archive on Instagram. If you've been hanging around the clothes horse community enough on Instagram, you know who she is. She's been such a strong supporter of clothes horse on Instagram and just in general, kind of, I feel like since pretty close to the beginning. She's also an amazing member of the community. She supports small businesses. She shops vintage. She has incredible style. 
I feel so honored to have her as an official patron. So thank you so much, Colleen. And I hope I didn't mess up your last name. If I did, let me know and I'll do it again. (laughs) Next is Elizabeth Wall of California. And I'm pretty sure based on my cyber stalking, that Elizabeth is the person behind wool jewelry. That's W-O-L-L. Remember when people would say two L's in a row as double hockey sticks? Did you do that? Should we say W-O double hockey sticks? Anyway, her line of jewelry is, I've been obsessed with it for quite a while. So imagine discovering that she is a patron of this podcast. Holy bananas. Do people say that? I'm saying it. Thank you so much for your support, Elizabeth. Next is Yo-Yo, an artist from Hummelstown, Pennsylvania, which might not mean that much to you, but that's very close to where I live in Bird in Hand. And it's always very exciting to find a member of the Close Horse community right here in Central PA. Thank you so much for your support. Lastly, but of course, never leastly, is Selena Caruso, another Californian. I was unable to effectively stalk Selena online, but I can only assume that she is an amazing person because guess what? All clothes horse patrons are super rad. Thank you so much, Selena. If you, yes, you would like to join this elite crew of just amazing people, find out more at patreon.com slash clothes horse podcast. Okay, well, as I mentioned last week, for the rest of this year, you'll be hearing audio essays from different small business owners within the Close Horse community. After all, small business is the future, and I'm constantly telling you that, right? Not only is this a great way for you to learn about small businesses within our community, it's also a chance to learn more about the hows and whys of doing your own thing, of being your own boss, and everything that comes along with it. You know that I believe the personal is political and our own personal stories drive our decisions and our values. And sharing them is a way to connect with others and have an impact on their decisions and values. Our stories are so powerful. My hope is that hearing these small business stories will motivate you to shop small and to be a cool, nice customer very important. And then you'll urge those around you to shop small and be cool, nice customers too. And then they'll do the same with the people around them. You see how this works? This is how a movement is born. This is how change happens. This is how small business becomes a bigger part of our lives. The first audio essay today comes from Rachel of Frayed Threads Mending. Hi, my name is Rachel Weigelt and I'm the owner and operator of Frayed Threads Mending a sustainability-focused mending and repair business in Seattle, Washington. I just started my business earlier this year in June of 2020. While I've been practicing as a commercial interior designer for the past 14 years, I've always had a passion for fashion, sewing, making, and creating. I always wanted to do something where I could have a more direct impact on climate change and sustainability and really push us for a more sustainable future. I had also reached a point in my career where I was really unclear on what my next steps were and where I wanted to go next. I've actually been working with a coach for the last nine months, and she's been 
crucial to helping me distill my interests and passions into key values and figure out how to apply those to build a life and career that aligns. My primary business is mending, refashioning, and basic tailoring services for clothes and other textile items. I also make zero-waste household products from upcycled and thrifted fabrics, often from sheets, tablecloths, and other fabric scraps. Right now, I offer reusable drawstring produce bags, but I'm hoping to expand to include reusable face rounds, beeswax wraps made from local beekeepers, and handkerchiefs. I've been sewing and crafting my whole life. I grew up with my grandparents on a small farm in central New York, and my grandma was an avid sewer. They were Depression-era farmers, a genuine Depression-era nana. (laughs) And so being resourceful and appreciative of the things you have was always in the forefront. My grandmother taught me how to sew on her old Singer sewing machine. Several years ago, I wanted to go beyond the basics that I learned from her and managed to figure out myself along the way and started taking classes after work at the Seattle Fashion Academy, a local trade school, which I've learned so much from. So far, the thing I enjoy most about my business is how excited and appreciative people are when you're able to repair their favorite sweater or pair of jeans. One of my favorite projects so far has been repairing an heirloom sweater. The sweater had been commissioned by the owner's father for her mother when they were dating in college. And what a great gift is that. Her mother and she had both worn and loved the sweater and now she wanted to pass it along to her daughter. But it was pretty worn out in the cuffs and had several holes in it. She wanted the repairs to be inconspicuous, which was challenging due to the complex color of the original yarn. Also, I hadn't learned Swiss darning yet. I was honest about this, and she asked me to try it anyway, and she was okay that I was willing to learn. The sweater turned out great, and she was so happy. I want to be part of these stories by helping people extend the lives of their clothes that and while reducing the impacts of climate change and show respect and care for the people who made them. I hope to educate others on why this is important, while at the same time building a stronger connection with my community. Thank you so much, Rachel, for sharing your story with us. Fun fact for all of you, Rachel was the first person to send in her audio essay, so naturally, she'll always have a special place in my heart. Also, I loved hearing her journey to becoming the owner of a mending business. Something I find over and over and over again is that often what we end up doing is not what we thought when we started, right? (laughs) Such is life, right? Wow, I just really said something so profound. Anyway, Thank you, Rachel, for your story. You can find Rachel on Instagram at frayedthreads underscore mending or at frayedthreadsmending.com. Don't worry, I'll share that in the show notes. Thank you, Rachel. Next, we have an audio essay from Jill, the owner of Spoils of Wear, an ethical boutique in St. Paul, Minnesota. Jill, are you feeling cold right now? Because it's cold in Pennsylvania and it's got to be even colder in Minnesota, right? Can you just... Tell me that so I feel less cold, aka a little bit warm. No, I wouldn't feel warm. I would just feel less cold. 
Anyway, Jill. Jill is great. Jill is part owner of a shoe store in addition to Spoils of Wear. You know what? Let's just let her explain that all to you because she's going to do a much better job than me. My name is Jill Erickson. I own a brick-and-mortar retail boutique in St. Paul, Minnesota called Spoils of Wear. I source only fair trade, USA-made, and small batch ethically produced clothing and accessories. I've owned and evolved Spoils for over five years now. And then earlier this year, I also opened a shoe store called Leo Footwear that I co-own with my business neighbor and bestie that is all about fun, quality shoes, mostly small batch, family-owned, and fair trade brands. We thought there was a vacancy in our community for specialty shoes and figured it would be fun to do that together. Um, However, we anticipated that the world would be a bit further along in COVID recovery by now, so it's been a slow go with that so far. Um, But we're hanging in there with our little COVID baby shoe shop. Um, I opened Spoils of Wear because I love self-expression through fashion and I love in-person shopping experiences and had challenged myself to start shopping more thoughtfully, like to take into consideration the values of the brand I was buying from and who was selling it. Um, So like really shopping my values. Um, And I dreamed of opening my own store for many years and got experience working for a couple of small boutiques. And then the idea just felt right location felt right so I made it happen in the fall of 2016 which turned out to be a very interesting uh first few months um with the election of Donald Trump that's another story for another day (laughs) I'm so proud though of the business and community and personal relationships that have been fostered at my store and I'm constantly looking for ways to grow in that way Having a store that focuses on ethics and sustainability really brings a depth to selling clothes. Like we address social issues, environmental issues, cultural aspects of the fashion industry. We have conversations about money and equity and diversity and so many other topics that we don't tend to consider um, when on an average shopping trip. Um, And I obviously, I don't have many answers, but I love that this has become a space of curiosity and questions while not sacrificing style and fun. Um, So after five really rocky first years, I've fallen more in love with small business ownership and the small business community. When the shutdown first happened in March of 2020, the only thing that really kept me going were the wonderful customers who stepped up to buy from my very haphazard website. Um, Like people I didn't even know were liking and sharing and commenting on social media at a time when I was unsure there would be any financial aid and was very doubtful I could withstand the long-term economic effects of a pandemic, while sentiments like, um, we're in this together, (laughs) felt like total lies, like salt on an open wound in other areas of my life. Um, The folks who really understood the kind of value brick and mortar bring to a community stepped up in the biggest way and made me feel like it was worth trying to get through it at all. Small business owners in my sphere, um, like on Instagram and even just in the neighborhood, really came together to share resources and encourage and promote each other however we could. And I'm so grateful that collaboration over competition is truly the attitude I find in so many small business owners and everything about that feels right on a very human, even spiritual level, especially when things are so 
bad and so hard. Um, so this is our second pandemic holiday season and I'm feeling pretty good about it, though I am exhausted and the pressure to hustle, hustle, hustle um, feels unavoidable. But my amazing supporters made sure that November and December of 2020 was the best we've ever had. And I'm hopeful that continues this year, working hard for it. Um, so you can find Spoils of Wear on Instagram at Spoils of Wear, S-P-O-I-L-S-O-F-W-E-A-R. And Leo Footwear is at Leo Footwear St. Paul, L-E-O-F-O-O-T-W-E-A-R-S-T. P-A-U-L. Thanks for listening. Thank you for such a great essay, Jill. I really appreciated that Jill was super real about the challenges of the pandemic, the 2016 election, everything. Because listening to her story, I was like, whoa, you know what? The last five years have been super weird. It's been a hard time to be a human in general, much less a small business owner. And it's interesting to hear about and think about the intersection of those two things. Jill already shared all the places you can find her on the internet, and I will also share that in the show notes. The deadline for submitting small business audio essays has passed, and I received so many that they might actually be running through January. But I feel like this was such a resounding success that I'll be doing a new audio essay series in the new year, and you'll have an opportunity to participate. So stay tuned for that. This series will be about work and your experiences with your job, your coworkers, and maybe even why or how you quit a job in particular. So stay tuned for that opportunity in the future. And I just want to say again, thank you to Jill. Thank you to Rachel. Thank you to everybody who submitted your essays. It is such a delight to listen to them. Okay, like I said, there's so much going on in this episode. So we have to keep moving along. So let's just jump right into my conversation with Kathleen of Republica Unicornia. So Kathleen, why don't you introduce yourself to everyone? Hi, I'm Kathleen Royston. I am the head yarn wench of Republica Unicornia. I am an independent yarn dyer and I live and work in fabulous Atlanta, Georgia. I, 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 you know, I asked this question to everyone. Were you just like, you crawled out of the womb and you were like, I am going to be a yarn wench. Is that, is that how it started or was there a journey to this? (laughs) Oh my goodness. Is there a journey? So I am from a family of engineers. My dad is like everyone in my family is an engineer. My grandfathers were both chemists. My dad's an engineer. My mom worked in computer science in the 70s when there were like no women in the field. So I grew up in a in a household that was all about making your own stuff and fixing your own stuff. So my dad's always had a workshop. My grandfather did woodworking. There's like this, my mom's a really good cook. So there was always making stuff in my life. And so I, I've always really been crafty. I was like the kid. I would we would like go to rummage sales and buy fabric, and I would try to sew clothes for my dolls and my grandmother Aww. crocheted. And I was always really fascinated by making things. But in my family, like there weren't any arty people. There wasn't anything like that. Everybody was very <laughs> technical, and I was kind of the weirdo because I'm 
was very into reading and literature and very right-brained and like talked about my feelings a lot. And it was very confusing to my family and still is sometimes. But I'd always made stuff and it was kind of a constant. And I just, it was like a hobby and I didn't really think anything of it. So I went to college. I started working in nonprofits and I, I'm an old millennial and I basically came of age in the 2008 financial crisis. Mm-hmm. I ended up unemployed. I started volunteering at a local church. I grew up in a fairly religious family and I, I started volunteering in this local church and sort of through a lot of different things, I ended up working at a church and then I ended up going to seminary and I became a pastor in my late twenties. And, uh, the, I was a pastor for, I was clergy, like actual clergy for three years. And I lived outside of DC and it was awful. (laughs) So I'm a super left-leaning, very sweary human, and I never fit in in the church. I mean, it's a very, like, it was a very patriarchal kind of thing. And even though I was in a denomination that is considered fairly progressive, it was, the system is just horrible. And so I was doing that. I'd like prepared. I mean, I have, a, I have a master's of divinity. I'd gone to grad school. I'd worked for years to get to this point. And I show up as a pastor and not very far in, I was like, oh shit, this is not, this is not going to work. Right. And I really tried to kind of shoehorn myself in it. And I guess about maybe about two years in, I, I was like, I'm going to die here. I, I really did. I thought I was going to have a heart attack before I turned 40, or I thought I was going to kill myself. And my mental and physical health were just awful. Um, And it was terrifying because like I'd been told that like this was the the sort of apex of my purpose in being in the world. And like, I couldn't do it anymore. Wow. Um, And it was a lot of living under a microscope. It was a lot of a system telling me that no matter what I did, no matter how hard I worked, I was never going to be good enough. And yeah, it was was not great. Um, And I'm very, very lucky to have a super supportive partner. And so I made the decision after, like the full decision, after two and a half years to leave parish ministry. And it was the absolute hardest decision I've ever made. And it was the worst time of my life. And so I made this decision. We were living in DC. We'd been living, I'd lived in Atlanta for like 20 years And so I was like, what I have to do is I have got to get back to Atlanta. I was like, I'm just going to go home and I'm going to lick my wounds and I'm going to figure it out. And so we made the preparations to move back to Atlanta. I got a year-long position working as a hospital chaplain. It was a program that had a year limit. And I was like, okay, we're going to go back and I'm just going to sort this all out. So this is all happening. And it's also, this was like 2017. So like, what's his face got elected. And then I'm like trying, like making this major and it's not even just, it wasn't even just a career transition. It was like a total life uprooting in every possible way. Yeah. It was like my identity, it was my, my vocation. It was like all of this stuff. And I felt like such a failure. I felt like I had just totally 
failed. I felt useless. I felt washed, like completely washed up. Like I was not good for anything. And I remember doing the interview for this chaplaincy program that I was totally qualified for. And they like, I just sobbed through the whole interview. And they were basically like, we're not sure you're healthy enough to do this. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm not even okay enough to do the thing that I'm totally prepared for. That is a one year long program that pays like $15 an hour. And I like sobbed in the airport. There was lots, basically there was just lots of crying. Um, <laughs> so much crying. And I just, I really did. I felt like I was done. Like I was what? I was maybe 30, I think I was 33 at the time. And I just thought oh my life my was God. over. Um, and so in this, and like, as I, like when I was working as a pastor, I, I started crafting more. I had done hand embroidery basically all the way through graduate school. I, um, embroidered really snarky out of context Bible verses using vintage patterns that I did. So like I found like vintage stuff, they're hysterical. And that like was what kept me going in graduate school. And so like I'd done hand embroidery. If there's a needle involved craft wise, I've done it. So I did that. And I started like making all this stuff. And while my work was so hard before I made the decision to leave, I had just like been making things and I'd started crocheting again. Um, I made a bunch of blankets. Like I did all of this stuff and it was the one of the only things that helped. And so I'd been crocheting and I'd always wanted to learn how to knit. And finally, I was like, look, I've advanced enough sort of in crocheting. I think I can handle two needles. And so I picked up two knitting needles. I was like, okay, I can do it. And I had a friend who was a knitter and she showed me how to do a couple of things. And I took to it like a duck to water. It was like coming home to my mate. Like I'd done everything. And it was a thing I was like, oh, this is it. So I learned how to knit in all of that. And as we were moving, as I was transitioning out of the church, my grandfather died. I was like a, just a disaster. And picking up knitting needles was like the only thing that kept me together. And so I started just making stuff. And I got really into working with hand-dyed yarn. And like, I, I don't know, like six weeks after I learned how to knit, we because we were living in D.C., I went to the Maryland Sheep and Wool Festival, which is like one of the huge fiber festivals in the U.S., and it was magical. And so, like, everything was falling apart. I felt totally useless, but, like, I still knew I could pick up knitting needles and make myself something colorful and squishy and warm, and it really was a lifeline. Ah. Uh. Um, <laughs> yeah, Completely totally life-changing. No, still at this point, assumed I was like going to like go either become a pastor somewhere else or I was going to get a job in a nonprofit. Like I, I had no idea that I was going to start a business. Like it was like not, I have a master's degree in Jesus. Like I wasn't gonna, <laughs> like business acumen is like not on the list anywhere in that. And so when I was working as a chaplain, I started buying a lot of hand-dyed yarn. And it was expensive for reasons we will discuss. Um, so it was really expensive. And I was making $15 an hour as a hospital chaplain. And I was like, well, I've done fabric dyeing before. Because, again, crafts. So I was like, how different can dyeing yarn be from dyeing fabric? So I bought all the stuff and like had a little day. And I was hooked. Like the first time I was like, oh. I can have all the yarn I want in all the colors that I want and everything I could possibly imagine. Let's do it. And so I started hand dyeing yarn in my kitchen in our like apartment kitchen with that gross white laminate that stains because you look oh, at it. Yes. Um, yes. <laughs> so I started, I would like get out like on the weekends, I would like get out like plastic sheeting like it was Dexter and 
put everything all over the kitchen and dye yarn in the kitchen. And I, about the same time, like I was starting to do this and I was really enjoying it. A local yarn shop opened in Atlanta for the first time in many years. And I was like, I wonder if they'd stock my yarn. And so I go, I'm like clueless at this point. I have no idea what I'm doing. I go and they placed a wholesale order. And so it kind of started from there. And I thought when my year-long program ended that I would just do this for a minute and then I would go get a proper grown-up job. And it ended and it became very apparent very quickly that my mental and physical health were not compatible with a nine to five job. I was diagnosed with complex PTSD, CPTSD. And so it just, I just kind of made it up. Like I, I literally had no idea what I was doing. I, again, a very supportive partner, but I had no idea what I was doing, but I knew that like the only time I felt okay is when I was making yarn. That was the only kind of work that made me feel like my brain wasn't exploding. Um, Because part of my trauma was basically entirely centered around work. And Mm -hmm. so being able to do work that was healing was just so, just so integral to my healing process. And it's, and one of the reasons I really love what I do is it lets me take care of myself. So if like my brain is screaming at me, and my body is screaming at me. I can take time that I need. So that has just been fabulous. And and I can't really imagine having made it through the last few years and sort of living with this major, essentially chronic mental illness without having my yarn to keep me company. <laughs> I mean, I the story you're telling me, I mean, minus a lot of the details, but the, the general healing power and yeah. I don't know, just like coping magic that comes from, you know, craft, whether it's knitting or dyeing yarn or sewing, whatever. It's something that I just hear time and time again mm-hmm. from different people in our community. Anytime we start talking about knitting, for example, on Instagram, everybody has a story about how yeah. it's their coping. For me, I was telling you this when we were preparing for this episode that I took up knitting after my daughter's father died. And it was just like a place I could be where I could think about something else and just count stitches Mm -hmm. and have this moment where I was just feeling the yarn and seeing myself create something and not having to like think about any of the other pain that I was dealing with. And then over time, as I was like moving through the grief of everything that had happened to me, it just became a comfortable place to go. So like if I was traveling for work and having a really exhausting time, it would be great to go back to my hotel room and knit and watch like forensic files or something. Yeah. You know? Trashy TV and knitting is where it is at. It's really where it's at. And like, I think that like there is something, you know, when we talk about like self-care, I think that capitalism, of course, has turned self-care into this massive industry about like buying tons of beauty products and masks and, you know, skincare and nail polish and hair dye and whatever. But like, I think the most important, the the kernel of truth around self-care is doing things that make you feel better, Mm -hmm. that help give you that mental space. And for some people that is, you know, getting their hair done, right? For other people, it is picking up some yarn and getting down to work or sewing a new dress. I just think... We tend to, and this is probably like, you know, capitalism getting in our heads, right? We tend to think of 
these things like knitting and sewing, any kind of craft as being really all about the final product. Mm -hmm. Like does something exist if there's not a physical thing? Like it doesn't have any credit or power until it's a thing. And I would say actually the whole process of sitting down and doing it is the magical part of it. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. And for me, like especially as a dyer is I get to see it completely start to finish, right? And there's Mm -hmm. very few parts of the process of like making a, like say knitting a sweater that I don't absolutely adore. Like from everything (laughs) from the planning to the like, I mean, I do, dyeing yarn is a lot of work, which we will talk about, but like the dyeing the yarn, the coming up with the colors, the dyeing the yarn, the planning, the actual sitting down and doing it, the finishing, like right now I'm on my desk, I'm looking at, I'm sewing uh, vintage buttons on a cardigan I just made. And like, I got to pick out the buttons. And I mean, there's just so much joy every step of the way. And I think that that's something that just has completely revolutionized how I think about a lot of things. And that it's also saying like, even though I am a hot fucking mess, that like, I'm still, there is something still useful in me. And I can still, like, my body is worth it to spend all of this time making something to keep myself warm. Like it's really elemental, like it's very visceral. And so knitting is absolutely, absolutely self-care. Totally, totally. And I think it's just something we tend to think about, like I said, what the end product is and that's the important part of it. And I just think the actual act is the most important part and so beneficial for us. When people ask like, why knit yourself a sweater when you could go buy one? I mean, that's like a whole, <laughs> don't get me started. <laughs> but like, I literally hear yeah. conversations like yeah. that. But conversely, um, here's something I saw on Instagram this morning. So I was like, you know, drinking some coffee, sitting on the couch with Dustin, looking at Instagram, which is what we do in the morning. Mm-hmm. And uh, I saw an ad. I was telling you how like I only get ads on Instagram right now. An ad for some company that was – it was very greenwashy. It was like, oh, if you wear – these underwear for a week, like you've saved 300 bottles from the landfill or something. And I was like, oh my God, that is like, I'm getting irritated. This is so (laughs) greenwashy and dumb. And I was like, I'm just going to look at the comments and see if anybody called that out because that would make me really proud and excited. Of course, no one did. Um, But one person said, and this is the segue into the next thing we're going to talk about. One person said, if you really want people to live a more sustainable lifestyle, you should lower your prices. Oh. Why are these more expensive? I know, right? And listen, I could have jumped in there and said, hey, actually, uh, the prices we pay for underwear at like your average fast fashion or department store or retailer right now are super fake, right? Like they're based on exploitation. All the things we talk about here all the time, right? Yep. And I was like, you know what? I'm just, I don't have it in me this morning. Yes. I got a lot to do. I got to get dressed. I'm, you know, I'm recording with Kathleen. Like I'll come back to this. But I'm sure if you are not hearing this kind of question, friends of yours are, people are probably asking, why is your yarn more expensive than the yarn I can get at Michael's or Joann's or Walmart where like you can get like a pound, literal pound a of yarn. A pound of yarn. And it's big. A pound of yarn is it's bigger than you yarn. think. Yeah. Uh, you can get like a pound of yarn for, I mean, what do you think? Eight bucks? Oh, yeah. With I mean, coupons? Can, like, wait, wait, I mean, yeah. Yeah. Can't, we cannot forget about the coupon industrial complex oh that crafting has, like the big craft chains. I mean, I guess we have, let's see, big craft chains. We have Joann's, which yep. is like, I can't even understand how much anything costs there. No, uh, because it's it's a mystery. 
It's, it's I mystery. had to order something for work and I was like, what, what, what is this? <laughs> Same thing with Michael's. That's another mm-hmm. one. I haven't been into Michael's for a long time, but the pricing there is confusing and there's discounts and 50% off and coupons and all this stuff. Uh, we used to have AC more, which was yeah. a little, I thought was more straightforward, which is maybe why they went out of business yes, and got did. bought by Michael's. Um, and then there's the place I, I don't even like to say this name out loud. Um, I'll just say it. Hobby Lobby. Oh Lord. Uh, I'm not familiar if they use a lot of discounting or whatever. Based on my one time walking into a Hobby Lobby, it was like 90% like decor. Like it was yes, like, very, yes, it, it, there's no hobbies happening in there. No, no. It's just <laughs> live, laugh, love everywhere. Just yeah. It's, but- it's so weird. It's so <laughs> weird. So I, uh, I want to hear from you why your yarn is not five dollars a pound (laughs) it's it's certainly not five dollars a pound so I am an so in in the yarn industry it's so weird to call it an industry because it's so like especially kind of higher god I hate that term but you know what I mean like higher end fancy ass yarn yeah yeah is just it's like not an industry and in an organized way like there's not like big corporations like the even the, like a big yarn company is not even a big yarn company but anyway um in the industry i am what is called an independent yarn dyer so you'll also hear it called indie dyed yarn um because i am literally just me like it's literally just me so the process and i'll just go through and talk about the actual process of dyeing and kind of how i do it so i purchase undyed yarn. I have a couple of uh, wholesale companies that I work with and I purchase undyed yarn and it comes in like kilo bags and looks like kilos of cocaine. (laughs) And it really does. And so most of the, in fact, I would say, okay, all of the yarn that I source is some kind of animal fiber. So if you like go to Michael's or you go wherever and you get the like Karen red heart or like the one like pound O yarn, that is almost all acrylic. I think Lion Brand does a couple of ones that are a wool uh, acrylic blend, but they're like 20% wool and like 80% acrylic. So those big commercial yarns that are super reasonably priced are generally made of some kind of synthetic fiber only, which they last forever. So that's a thing. Um, if you've ever <laughs> been in a thrift store and seen literally. like crochet, literally forever, you've seen crochet blankets <laughs> from like 1975 that are bright orange. Those are made of those. Yarn- that my grandmother loved that yarn. That is what she she made. She called them foot warmers. They were like little socks. She would crochet. That was what she made. That's the only thing she crocheted. Anyway, so the yarn that I use is uh, animal fibers. So I tend I I like wool. I mostly do wool. Um, cheap hair, as we call it. And it is, I use all kinds of different breeds. So I often use merino wool. Um, a lot of my, I use a breed called Blueface Lester, which is a British breed, which I really like. That's kind of my favorite. Um, I have a, I stock a Tarhi, which is a uh, sh- sheep breed that is a, hi- it's a hybrid. Is that the right thing? What am I talking about? You're gonna have to edit this. Um, I think it might be. A, I think it might be a hybrid. I think you're a hybrid. It's like a. I mean, I, th- I, th- I, you know, I'm not up on animal husbandry me either. <laughs> I, I think, I think it's it's a breed. It's a hybrid. It's something. It's some kind of hybrid. A mixed, say. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, Tarhi are they were developed in the U.S. in I think the late 19th century. So it's a U.S. breed. Um, and I also uh, sometimes use mohair and silk. So I, it's all these animal fibers. So like if you hear these, like if you see 
a sweater in the shop and it's merino wool, you're like, oh, that's a fancy sweater. So I'm using fancy, fancy wool. Um, mm-hmm. So that is definitely one of the reasons that uh, hand-dyed yarn is so expensive. The other is that the labor is significant. So protein fibers, so wool, silk, anything that comes from not a plant, that also comes from nature, um, all of those use what are called acid dyes. So if you've ever done tie-dyeing, you have used fiber-reactive dyes, and those are the ones where you like soak things in soda ash and you use cold water. So that's a certain kind of dye. So what I use is the other kind, which is called an acid dye. And so they are acid and heat reactive. And the acid part sounds very fancy. It is not fancy. I use either vinegar or more often I use citric acid as a mordant. So the thing to kind of set the dye. So Uh acid dyes need both acid and heat. So when I go to dye yarn, I actually, so the way that I do it, you can dye yarn on the stovetop, which is how I did when I started, like just regular stovetop. Um, you can do it, some people do it in crock pots. Some people do like induction burners. So there's all these different ways you can do it. The way that I do it is I have a piece of restaurant supply equipment. Wow. Is, it's so fun. <laughs> so this is the other funny thing. Like I'm a really intense hobbyist cook. And when I put together my studio, I was like, oh, it's an industrial kitchen. So what I use, it's a proofing oven. So it's, if you've ever worked in a restaurant or a bakery, it is the thing that you use to like hold food, to keep food at a certain temperature and, or to proof bread dough. So I have one in my garage and it basically acts like a giant crock pot. So it it takes a very, it takes a long time. So the way that I dye yarn is you soak yarn. And I use hotel pans, just like like restaurant kitchen hotel pans, and apply the dye. So sometimes I have to mix the dye depending on how I'm doing the color. I apply the dye. I, it's in like an acid bath. That sounds terrible. It's not. It's like literally water with some citric acid. And I do whatever I do artsy-wise, and then it goes into the oven for usually like three to four hours. So the time is significant. And also, like if you've ever lifted a wet sweater... <laughs> Wet yarn is heavy. Like yeah. I am buff in a way that I have not necessarily been in my adult life because I'm lifting giant pans of water in and out of this cabinet oven thing. And so then the yarn cooks and then it comes out and I um, soak it in wool wash to kind of wash out any excess. And then I have a spin dryer, which is like a giant, it's like a giant salad spinner. And I, so I like to put the yarn in there and spin it out. And then I hang it up on the rack and then I twist it into, so it ends up like in a skein. So if you've ever seen like a twisted skein of yarn, that's, I have to, I have to do that. And I have a machine that helps me with that. It is essentially a meat hook on a motor. And (laughs) exactly what it is. And so then I do that and then I have to label it and I photograph it and publicize it and pack it up and ship it. Do you see what's going into this? I mean, we're talking like, I can maybe do comfortably like, a. I mean, I would say start to finish like a, a skein of yarn takes four days, not full, full days. But by the time you go start to finish, so like, yeah, a skein of yarn is $30, but I have spent so much freaking time with it. So the labor, it's really labor intensive and it's also equipment intensive. I mean, I, I own a piece of fairly expensive restaurant supply equipment. I have a, we turned my, our garage into a studio. And so I have 
a commercial sink. I have a commercial prep table. Like I have all of this, just it's, it's a lot goes into it. Um, and there's also like, I didn't even talk about this part. Like I have a very hard time having grown up, not as an artist identifying as an artist, but like the fact is I am an (laughs) artist. Like I'm doing basically abstract painting onto yarn. So you're also paying for all of my expertise and all of my know-how and the fact that I make yarn and it doesn't look like brown barf on a skein. (laughs) Right, right. It's not one color. Um, So if anyone goes and looks at my website, like there's a lot of complexity that goes into this. There's a lot of different steps. So there's, there's definitely some artistry and knowledge in it as well. Um, So you're getting, when you buy a skein of hand dyed yarn, you're getting basically a piece of art that you can use and you can wear. Right, right. I mean, listen, I I agree. Like this yarn should not be the same price as the (laughs) buy the pound at uh, Michael's, but also that yarn shouldn't be $5 either. You know what I mean? Like should not. That's the thing is like, for one, everything you're making is a better quality and going to last. Well, that that red heart yarn, isn't that the brand red heart? Yes. That's going to last, you know, easily a thousand years in the landfill. But, you know, like from in terms of it looking good for a long time, it may not in the way that your stuff is. But regardless, even that red heart $5 pound yarn should not be $5. So just like expands, like it's like all of us need to completely dismantle our thinking about the price of things. And I feel like I say that constantly, Mm -hmm. just saying it again, because it is a hard exercise. Yeah. It is even for me, sometimes I'm like, um, I don't really want to pay more than $10 for a bra. And then I'm like, wait a minute, dude, get out of yeah. your head. <laughs> like y- someone along the way convinced you that bras should be $10. You got to cut that off and realize that like if bras are $10, people are being paid pennies to make it. Yes. There's all kinds of exploitation and all kinds of other bad shit happening. And so really when you buy something from a small brand and it is more expensive, you can say – this has a lot, like, if you want to get, like, weird and metaphysical, there's, like, some better vibes attached to oh, it. Oh, absolutely. Right? Right? Because it's, absolutely. like, you know that, especially if it's a small business, someone is making a living. You're supporting someone following mm-hmm. their dreams. Uh, you are buying something that is free of exploitation. You're buying something that is has been so th- – is so – so thoughtfully created. Yeah. And I just think, like, why wouldn't you make that choice? Yeah. I, I had this I had this very vivid experience going into Target. Also, P.S. I love clothes. Like I've always really loved clothes. My mom swears that when she when I was a baby, she would like hold up before I could talk. She would like hold up two outfits and I'd pick one out. So like I've always Aww. really loved clothes. And I went into Target. I hadn't been knitting very long, and I went into Target, and I just remember looking at like all the like acrylic sweaters and <sighs> being like. Knowing how much had gone into, even if they're machine made, they're not, I mean, one, you can't crochet via machine. So if you ever see anything crocheted for $5, like some human made that. Red alert. Yeah. Um, So upsetting. But like even, even machine nets, like, like there's still expertise that goes into designing and making those machines and like seeing these sweaters for like $29.99. And I just spent like $90 on yarn for a sweater I was making and being like, holy shit, how? Like, not just, and thinking about, you know, human misery in it and human, like, how, who decided that other people's labor isn't worth as much as mine? Like, what, why? It's 
ridiculous. Like all labor has value. And so, yeah, that was really, really revolutionary um, for me to start thinking about as a maker, just how much goes into things. I will say this. One thing that I do personally struggle with a little bit, right, is we're all screwed up on how much stuff costs, but also like we all live in a capitalist hellscape and the fact is my prices are not accessible to everybody. Like they're right. not. That's and true. I, I do what I can on my end to kind of make that better and finding that balance. And there's a <laughs> the yarn world has a reputation not entirely undeserved of a good amount of snobbery. So mm, yeah. if you can't afford to knit with the fancy shit, like somehow you're not as good of a maker. And that is ridiculous. Cause like if what you can do is the $5 stuff with a coupon at Michael's and that ma- that allows you to make something that you love, that you're going to wear forever, that makes you feel powerful and fabulous and stops you from playing into buying something from like saying buying something from Target, like I am, I am also here for that. So the, the yarn, like, and it's weird for me to say that because I literally make my living on selling expensive yarn. But I also, I think that like so many things, accessibility, like it's a hard, it's just a hard thing. And so some things that I do to make my work as accessible as possible, I usually, I do it, I do a small business Saturday sale once a year. It's my like kind of once a year sale. And I also offer a quantity discount. So if someone is making a sweater and you need more, it's, I think it's, I think I do it on four or more skeins, there's a discount on that. Um, so I kind of do what I can to help with that. But I also understand that like, it's a treat. For some, like sometimes, you know, it was for, that's literally why I started dyeing yarn. So it is, it's a, it's a weird place to be in. And I think a lot of us who are makers of fancy things um, run into that too. And I think, you know, even as, as hobbyists, it's kind of like, oh, like it's going to cost me how much I, I sew garments as well for myself. And that's a fairly new thing. And being like, oh, that fabric is how much? Like, and I still have to make it? <laughs> yeah, no, totally. And I think, like, I, I feel like I spend a lot of time lately um, on the Close Horse Instagram uh, comments moderating yeah. stuff like that where people yeah. are showing up to be like, I don't know what your problem is, people, if you're not sewing your own clothes or buying expensive brands or this, 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 this. And I'm like, take a step back, bro. Like. Mm-hmm. This we live in a hard world at a hard time, and like I, if there's one thing that I bring to the table when I'm having these conversations is like I have had I have struggled more often in my life yeah. than not, and I understand all of the different ways that the systems that we live in right now chip away at your ability to do nice things for yourself or do nice things for the world. Right? Yeah. Like if you don't have a car you probably can't go thrifting. If you have small children, you probably can't go thrifting. If you have small children, you probably can't sew. You know, right. if you work multiple jobs, you probably can't do any of this stuff. If you, you know, don't have daycare, if you are a single parent, if your partner's not very good at co-parenting. I mean, like so, so many, many things. things. I know so that's just many like things. The, right. And that's just the beginning of the list. And I think you know, when I see people, it's a, it's a, it's a tough one, right? It's like, I see people on Instagram harassing small businesses and being like, why can't you sell stuff for cheaper? Why can't you be Amazon? But then I also see people being like, you're, you're the problem because you are, you aren't even trying or like what, you know, and I'm just like, guys, 
listen, what yeah. we really need to do is collaborate here and figure out how we as a group, as a community, as a growing movement can make all of this stuff more accessible to anyone. If you are giving people shit about not thrifting because they don't have a car or they don't have children or they have children or they work a lot, hey, offer to drive them to the thrift store, offer yeah. to babysit for them, offer to find stuff for them. Like don't just sit there and be like judgy. Yeah. You know, and so it's like, I feel like I'm doing a lot of that in the comments lately. <laughs> it's cool because the thing is, right, we can't, it's it's very, very hard. And I see this in so many ways. You can't yell at the system. It's a system, right? It's You not, wish you could, right? I'd love to. I'd love to go like, outside and yell at the system. <laughs> be like, excuse me, system. But like, that's not how it works. And so, and because I think so many of us feel powerless under this system, mm -hmm. that like, it's easier to like narrow in on like individual individuals, individual behavior, and this like weird, and I'm going to use a church word, but it's like this weird orthodoxy about like sustainability and like doing the right thing. And like, there's this one way to do it. And one of the things I love about Clothes Horse and why I stuck stick around is like, <laughs> you've never done that, right? Like, I think you do such a good job of seeing a big picture. And I know that there are people who think that like, I'm horrible because I sew my clothes using not thrifted fabric and I mm -hmm. dye yarn and there's, you know, what, I mean, whatever, like there's all kinds of things, but I think people just feel the system is so pervasive that people feel powerless. And when they feel powerless, they lash out at things they think they can control, which seems to be other people, which is weird to me because <laughs> having worked with other people, I had, was not able to make them do the right thing. Um. <laughs> no, I mean, and I think, I think, you know, when you and I were preparing for this episode, you were like, Amanda, I'm just going to tell you right now <laughs> that uh, I, you know, I'm not perfect and all this other stuff. And I was like, no, like literally no one is, but I yeah. do think that, and you know, this is, this is a system we've all created for ourselves to oppress right. ourselves with, the, which is this expectation of perfection. And yeah. I saw it. I've seen it picking up so much momentum over the past few years. I yes. think back when I think about what I want this community, this movement to look like, I go back to something that I don't want it to look like. And that is uh, back in 2000, I guess it would have been 17, when we had the Women's March in Portland, where I was living at the time. It was so fucking nasty. Mm. The Facebook group was like the ugliest thing I've ever seen. People were being really shitty because everybody was freaked the fuck out, right? Mm -hmm. We had, you know, the 2016 election was soul crushing to say the least. There was so much anxiety. So many people were worried about losing their rights or having them eroded even more than they already were. And it was just generally a really bad time. And rather than really coming together and really working to lift everyone up and make things better. Instead, everybody was like being really shitty on the internet to one another. Yeah. Like shocking. Like I would see women come into this Facebook group who are like 65 years old, right? They're like from a totally different generation. And they're so amped on this Women's March of finally having this opportunity to get out there and they are being like shit all over for like, like rather than saying like, Hey, your sign that says we are all sisters is problematic to me for X, Y, Z reasons. And here's like why we don't say that anymore or whatever. Uh, people would be like, that's fucking stupid. You're not my yeah. sister and things like that. And I was like, Oh, oh. my God, 
Stop it. You're like alienating people when we should be like yeah. embracing one another. And I think this idea of perfection is yeah. still out there segmenting us all. It's yeah. making people afraid to join the movement. It's making people feel like they can't really lean into it because they might be found out as a fraud or something, yeah. you know? And I just – we we don't need it. We don't we need to get rid of that. Yeah. We need to say our frustration is not with one another. It's with this other thing that will continue to just totally frustrate us and destroy humanity and the planet if we all don't work together. Yeah. I struggle with this in me because one of the and if anyone follows me on social media like you've seen this it's like it's it was always really important to me as a business that I was very clear about my values, that I'm very clear about my politics because I couldn't be as a pastor, right? Like I had to be diplomatic and I am not a diplomat naturally. And so it was really important to me that I was like, here are the causes that I support. And so I support all kinds of causes with money from the business and I'm very intentional about it, but always feeling like I'm not doing enough there. And like, Mm -hmm. so if it's not, if I'm not being outspoken enough on social justice, I worry that like, oh God, and and I'm dying yarn that has nylon in it. And I'm like, it's just this like horrible thing. It's not even just external. It's also in myself. And I've kind of come to the conclusion lately that my role in this is just rainbows and joy. And I don't mean that in a toxic positivity way. Right, right. (laughs) But I mean, like, one of the things that I think in any kind of movement is, this is going to sound really woo-woo, but whatever, is beauty and joy, right? And so if I'm literally over here making rainbows and getting people to make their own clothes, I think that's an okay part. It's an okay lane for me to be in. Like, that feels like my lane and not having to be everywhere and be everything to everyone because like that will just make you crazy. And I, as a, as a person who has very high standards for myself and who has also been very engaged in all kinds of just social justice work my entire adult life is that sounded pretentious. You can cut that <laughs> I know it didn't sound pretentious. So pretentious. I just don't like literally my whole goal in life is to not be a dick, right? And so part of so part of that is like caring for other people and caring for the planet. Mm-hmm. That is essential. But having been involved in that and then finding myself in this very different realm is hard sometimes, but also it feels like my place. And so I think that there it is important as we try to not you know, I'll die, that we leave space for pretty things. And we leave space for craft and community and care and all of those things that it's not just doom and gloom planet is burning, but it's both and right. Like being, this is hard. And I think I see, especially in online circles, it's really easy to go all the way to the, like, everything is terrible and we're dying, which like, sure. And also everything is really beautiful and like we can actually take care of each other. Yeah. And have rainbows. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, you know, it, it can be so easy to lose sight of that. I mean, I just Yeah. It's it's a puzzle I'm still trying to put together, mm-hmm. like how we transform the conversation and make it less me versus you, who's mm-hmm. doing this better, take the competition out of it. Yeah. I don't know. I, it always takes me back to when I was working retail, right? When you work, have you ever had to work retail? Oh, you yes. Been, okay, so you know, so if you have, if your coworkers are cool, meaning like good, nice people, you definitely get into a, a mindset where it's you guys versus 
the customers, right? Mm-hmm. Because people, listen, we're all customers somewhere. I try my hardest to be the best, yep. most compassionate, thoughtful, kind, good energy having customer. Unfortunately, that's not a common yeah. approach to being a customer, right? So, no. you know, the people who come in and like humiliate you and challenge you on a daily basis are always the customers. And so you build this sense of community where you're there to support one another. And I'm like, how do we transport that, yeah. translate it, I guess, to the world as a whole? Like, how do we know who our enemy really is? Like, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, because I feel like right now, unfortunately, and I think it it comes back to just people feeling frustrated, to feeling helpless and hopeless, that suddenly the enemy becomes everything and everyone. And enemy is a strong word. But then again, I wouldn't look at like, you know, Jeff Bezos and be like, that guy's my buddy. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, no. I don't feel like we're compatriots here or we're on the same team. And so or maybe- like even the same plane of existence. I'm like, what world right. do you live in, sir? Right. I'm like, I can't figure out what is going on with your brain when it comes to like <laughs> compassion for other people. Uh, I don't think you have it. Maybe we do need to use the term enemy, even though it sounds really intense. It does sound I'm very like, intense. Intense and really intense. It's like, are they our adversary? Isn't that the same as enemy? I have no idea. Anyway, open to open to nouns there <laughs> from anyone. But I do think that like we have to remember that we're not fighting one another. We're fighting someone else. And that someone else is just, you know, I mean, Jeff Bezos being like a mascot, but just a member of that team. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like, right? Uh, the people who make tons of uh, $5 a pound yarn and are paying their workers pennies and having them live in poverty. We're fighting against that. Right. We're not fighting against people who knit with $5 a pound yarn. Correct. Right? Correct. Totally. Totally. Uh, we're fighting against the means, the systems that create that yarn. Yes. Yes. So you let's, let's, now that we've talked about this idea of perfection that we'll never achieve, uh, or at least not for a very long time. Why don't you just go ahead and confess the things that you were really concerned that maybe we should call off the interview about? <laughs> I'm so sorry you've had to deal with my anxious, anxious self. Like, oh fine, God. Fine. <laughs> so, so a couple of things um, is a lot of the yarn that I stock has a nylon content, which is plastic. And the reason is, it's really interesting because when I started the business, what, what it, sort of one of my primary values has been making sure that what I make lasts as long as possible. And so I stock a lot of lightweight, lighter weight yarns, which by the way is called fingering weight, which if that doesn't make you giggle, you're Ugh, not a 12 year old boy. I and can't. I, every time. I've been doing this for years and I'm like, hee hee. So, um, so a lot of fingering weight yarns are, I wanted to make sure they would be usable for sock for being socks. And just because of physics, if you knit socks out of a hundred percent wool, you will have to mend them more often because your Mm -hmm. foot is rubbing it. This is like very boring stuff, but like that your foot's rubbing against the restriction on the bottom and at the heel and the little, the nylon content, which is not a hundred percent obviously, but like the 20 five to 20% nylon, sometimes 10, will kind of help strengthen those fibers. And I also decided to kind of go that way because I also really want hand-knit sweaters to last for a long time and same thing. And so that just that little bit, that extra nylon content helps stuff last longer. It does mean you can't just like throw it out in the compost pile when you're done with it and it'll biodegrade like 100% wool does. So that is a thing that I've done. And I... 
I go back and forth on it. I've really tried to start moving away from that. Um, and it isn't actually, it hasn't really worked <laughs> because the sort of industry standard is something with a nylon content in it for hand-dyed mm-hmm. yarn. Because if right. you buy if you buy a skein of yarn and you don't know what you're going to make with it, you can always make socks. Which P.S. Just a P.S.A. Hand knit socks are life changing. Oh really? Tell so, me more. Okay, so I have them. I have tiny narrow feet, and like my socks have never fit ever because I'm not a mm-hmm. standard like I'm not the standard sort of. And no one is. There's no you know the sizing. There's no standard. Yeah, there's no standard. <laughs> there's no standard. But. Knitting my own socks, like they are so much more comfortable because, like, I have a high arch, so I can do things to make them fit my feet perfectly, and they last a really long time. I'm like wearing. I think I currently have on a four year old pair of hand knit socks, and like they get a little fuzzy on the bottom, but there's no holes in them. I mean, they last. I wash them in the washing machine, and I air dry them, and they're beautiful. So, team socks. Um, so that so I do. So my yarns do have nylon content. Not everything does. Um, and one of the ways that I've kind of worked on mitigating that a little bit is I've started sourcing uh, wools that are uh, grown and processed in the United States. So I have a merino yarn sock base I, that has some nylon in it, but the sheep are they're American sheep. And <laughs> thank God. Yes. <laughs> hey. Um, and because it, like, it is also important to me to support the wool industry in the U.S. Right. Like that right, is a. Right. Actually, sheep are not nearly as bad for the environment as a lot of other things Um, Mm -hmm. because, you know, they're sheep and they're not factory farmed in the way that like cows are or anything like that. Um, And so supporting the U.S. wool industry matters to me. And then the Tarhi sock base, which is the hybrid breed, has a 10% nylon content and uh, it's a U.S. breed. So I'm there's some things I try to do to kind of offset that. Like, like on my own, like offsetting my own carbon footprint. I don't think that's a thing you can do, but there are some things like I'm, I'm conscious of it. Right. So right. that's, that's the one. Okay. Here's the, here's the big one. So almost all of the yarn that I use is super wash treated. And this mm-hmm. is a really gross process that there's not a lot of transparency about. It is plasticized in some way there is some kind of plasticky coating on it and here's this was another longevity thing one there's a couple of things one it's not like it feels like acrylic like if you feel like my yarn it's it feels like wool it makes it a little bit softer because people are weird about itchy wool i personally love itchy wool but not everybody loves itchy wool and it um the fibers lay down differently so it takes dye a lot differently and so artistically this kind of treatment on it means that it takes dye it like really really well and the colors are really vibrant it also means that stuff is machine washable Um, and a lot of people are shy away from using wool because you have like if you ever felted a wool sweater like washed a tiny and it was like a tiny wool sweater so superwash five superwash yarn doesn't felt. And mm. so which is when it gets all like fuzzy and like the fibers all stick together like if you if you've ever seen a sweater. I mean, this has happened to me. I remember it was one of the first things I learned the hard way as an adult. I'll just uh, say that. Uh, <laughs> we've all done it. We have all ended right. up with like the dull side. You're like, "What in the hell?" So superwash yarn doesn't do that. And so one of the things, and again, when I was starting the business, one of the things I was thinking about was do like, 
I want people who buy this very expensive product that I am making to have garments that are going to look good for a long time and are going to not do weird things and are not going to pill. And so that was one of the decisions that I made. I have incredibly mixed feelings about it. As an artist, I'm like, yes, please give me the canvas that I can work with, right? As Mm -hmm. a human who cares, I'm like, oh, shit. So, so I've, I've tried to introduce non-super, they're, they're also harder to dye, right? And so since I have to, because there's so much labor involved, I do have to sell a certain amount to kind of keep going. Right. And it is, yeah, it's complicated. I have a very good friend, a dyer friend, uh, her name is Larissa, and she is amazing and she dyes all non-superwash yarn and it's beautiful. And so I think that is one of the things that like maybe a slow transition um, I don't know that I could ever get entirely out of it, but it may be a slow transition now that I've been doing it for a while and I kind of know my process a little bit better. But yeah, yeah, yeah. it's not. I mean, that's the big one. Um, the you know the upshot is right. I am not producing at an industrial scale because it is literally just me, right? <laughs> <laughs> like I am owner. I own the means of production and I am labor. And so I, you know, the, like, the way that I sleep at night (laughs) is I'm not producing at this, like, ridiculous scale all the time, right? Like, I'm limited by what I can physically do. Um, And the sort of trade-off is I get more people doing handcraft, which feels important to me in a way. So it's, I don't know. I mean, it's, look, it's complicated, period. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean it, it is, and that's what I was like. It it's all complicated, it's guys. All complicated. As we record this, I'm literally wearing a bra from Target. Okay, like yep. I needed a bra. All my bras broke. I have, as spoiler alert, not gotten rich off of clothes horse, and I was just like, I this is what I'm gonna have to do, yeah. and I'm just gonna take care of it. And I think we need to like not beat ourselves up about it. And arguably, like. Right. So my yarn is not perfectly, you know, like I don't have sheep in my yard. I'm not spinning my own wool. I'm not, you know, I'm not doing that. Right. But I am hopefully getting people to buy less ready-made stuff. Like I can say that like, even with like a slightly gross uh, treatment on the outside of the yarn, uh, I'm not exploiting labor. I'm not I'm very aware of my waste and water usage and things like that, you know? So there's like, I don't know. It's a, it is, it's like a weird trade-off balance thing. And, and I think like, I remember hearing that there's no ethical consumption under capitalism a few years ago and getting pissed <laughs> about it. Cause I was like, I am ethical as fuck. Like I am over here. <laughs> I would, I think it would probably be better to say there's no perfection under capitalism yes. because like where, how we live right now, the systems we live within, yeah. I mean, there is no perfection. You don't know, like, I mean, let's, let's, let's get really granular here. Let's say the place, the people who are raising the sheep that the wool is coming from, right? Maybe they are buying food from some like sheep food, whatever that would be (laughs) from a company that's totally exploiting labor. Right. Or maybe the people who own the sheep are like total assholes and only drink things and use disposable utensils and cups. And like they just are, they have a mountain of plastic in their backyard that they burn. We don't know, right? Like 
no perfection. I know that's an extreme version, but the reality is even if you go out and you're like, I just bought this new thing from a sustainable brand, uh, they don't even know. They do not even know. Like that doesn't mean that we shouldn't ask them and push them to know because unfortunately that system needs to be dismantled and rebuilt in a transparent way. And that's never going to happen as long as we're all over here fretting about the perfection of our consumption. Yeah. Like we can't, we, we got to get over it and we got to focus all of that on we, all that frustration, all that angst on the people making this stuff, right? Yeah. Like doing better for us. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, that's something interesting, like working with, I mean, like literally with my canvas comes from literal sheep, like it comes from actual animals. Is you like follow the supply, like you can make yourself crazy following the supply chain down. Like you can do it. And there, and like there are people in the yarn world who grow their own sheep and work with a mill and get the fleece processed and spin their own yarn and like more power to them, right? Like that is that's amazing. Amazing. But I also know for me, like finding that that point at which like, okay, well, I'm not really into animal husbandry. I'm not like I grew up. Why like, not? <laughs> I grew up in Chicago and I live in Atlanta. Like I'm not really outdoorsy like that. Like there's just not that's not a direction I can go. And so for me, it was kind of like, well, what can I do on what can I do on my end? And so I have found the things and I'm I'm really proud of my work. I sound like I'm talking it down. I, I love what I do. I enjoy what I do. I think I get to bring some joy into the world and the community that has formed around Republica Unicornia has been amazing. Like it's not just customers. Like these are, it's a, it's really a community and it's, it warms my cold dead little heart every time someone is like, I saw the thing that you made and you've inspired me to start sewing my own clothes. I'm like, yes, win. And so, yeah, that perfection thing though, it's there. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, everyone. I'm so excited to announce that one of my favorite brands, New Works, is an official sponsor of Clothes Horse. I've been a fan of New Works for a long time because they have unique prints created by some of my favorite artists. If you're looking for an article of clothing that you can proudly outfit repeat for years and years and still receive compliments from strangers everywhere you go... Newworks is the brand for you. Seriously, one of my all-time favorite Newworks purchases is the Dahlia mock neck dress in the Ash and Chess print Better Days. Everywhere I go, someone is blown away. I may have recently received a free breakfast taco from a barista just for telling them where I got my dress. I've also found that while all of the Newworks prints are unique conversation starters, All of the pieces themselves are easy to mix and match into an almost infinite array of outfits. Dress them up, dress them down. The outfit repeating potential here is massive. The silhouettes are designed to make you feel good, happy, and just generally full of positive vibes. And Newworks offers sizes extra small through 5X with plans to continue to expand sizing. And oh yeah, they make adorable kids clothes too. Well, now that we've covered all of the aesthetic reasons I love New Works, let's get into the serious stuff. In a world where it's progress, not perfection, New Works is constantly striving to do better and better, always with an eye on progress when it comes to sustainability. 
All Newworks products are made by a small team in limited batches in California. You won't see any ridiculous waste over here. In fact, the company is constantly working to reduce their waste. As part of this commitment, Newworks has been offering packs of scraps for all of you crafty types to turn into your own cool, unique projects. And they even sold a few zero waste pieces recently, which was really so cool and something you just don't see out there as much as you should, right? On top of that, Newworks now offers Full Circle, a resale platform for Newworks products, because the idea is that these clothes should remain in circulation and be worn just as much as possible for as long as possible. Newworks is a woman-owned, women-run business. There are no venture capitalists or big investors involved, just a small team of incredibly nice people. And they're working hard to do the best they can for the planet and its people. Everyone involved in creating Newworks products are paid a living wage. And Newworks tries to source all of their materials in the USA and work only with incredibly nice people. Their hope is that every Newworks purchase will be a shining gem in your closet that you will cherish forever or hand down to someone you love. Once again, I'm just so proud and so honored to have this amazing brand as a sponsor of my work here at Clothes Horse. Go see why I love them so much at newworks.com or find them on Instagram at newworks. And that's new N-O-O. Okay, we've already talked about how like there are so many things that are out of our control, right? right. Um, which can sometimes make you feel like the world is like caving in on you. But actually, there are so many things that we can do on our own that can have massive impact when a lot of us are doing it at the same time. And one thing I think about a lot uh, is craft supply hoarding, which we're all guilty of, okay? Like get into fabric, get into sewing. Suddenly you're buying fabric every time you see it. I mean, my stepmother is an amazing seamstress. She can sew anything and she makes it look so easy. She also has a full closet that's just fabric. Yeah. You know, which when you're working on something is exciting to be like, hey, can I just like look in there? But like this is normal. Like, yeah. I mean, when I go to thrifting, there's so much fabric and yarn and craft supply because people eventually move or pass away or you know decide to downsize and suddenly it's all there. How do we break the habit of hoarding craft supplies? Oh, this is such a hard one. It just it's really it is, hard because I'm like I've, I'm super guilty. I'm like literally looking at my fabric stash. Um, <laughs> one of the things that I learned early on as like a, a motto. Now I will say like I keep a robust yarn stash. I, <laughs> of course I do. you do. Of course it's, you do. I also keep two pounds of butter in the freezer at all times in case I need to bake something. And Dude, me too. Listen, out. I don't know where I got it in my head that someday there might not be butter. <laughs> But there's always two pounds of butter. Oh my gosh, always two pounds of butter. My yeah. mom always my mom always kept a pecan freezer. My family's from Louisiana. Oh. And she would like stack up like stock up on pecans. And like we always had a, like a full freezer of pecans. Anyway, um, so I will say like I'm I am not actually anti-stash. I am, mm-hmm. however, very careful about what comes in. And I'm also careful to know that there's always more yarn. Um one of the things that can happen with handmade anything 
is there's limited supplies, right? Because it's one person making it or whatever. Like I also mm-hmm. sell project bags um, and I do limited runs of fabric, not because I'm mean, but because I get bored sewing the same thing over and over again. <laughs> I understand that like, feeling. I am, like once I, once I make a thing, I'm like, okay, that's beautiful. Like, please go to your new home, but I'm done. And so <laughs> I always, but, but for yarn, sometimes it can get like a little, you know, Beanie Babies in the 90s, right? Like there's a shortage and you're like, oh my gosh, this thing is so beautiful and I need it and it's going to make me happy. And one of the things that I always tell myself about both fabric and yarn is there's always more. There is like, so if you are buying more than you can use and you're not comfortable with that and it feels weird that even if you miss out on that thing that you think is just so fabulous, like there will be something else that you will also love. Um, and true. so I definitely say that to myself a good bit. One thing I do as a business owner, because I also know, like, it's, I mean, I, look, it's really fun to buy pretty shiny colored things. Like, it just is. Mm-hmm. So one thing I try to do that I've always done is make sure that my colorways are repeatable. So as a baker, I'm really uptight. And so when I dye something, I have precise measurements. I like do, I like measure out dye to the thousandth of a gram like I'm not there's going to be variation because it's a hand-dyed product but if you ever see a color of yarn in my shop and it goes away it'll probably be back Mm. because I can do things over and over again because I have that knowledge and I have a recipe book and so that's a way that I personally like as a business try to mitigate some of the grabby hands stuff because it can get crazy (laughs) yeah yeah no it's true I mean I think like you know we see the same thing with clothing right people are like yes with like certain brands and getting every print that comes out or people think about like our grandmas collecting like Franklin Mint figurines (laughs) or whatever you know it's all it's like such a human collecting yes yeah collecting and right? I'm absolutely collector like, I, like <laughs> there's no way around that one um <laughs> and so you know and I think I think for me like it's also one of the ways that I try not to is sort of understanding where it stops feeling fun and starts feeling like overwhelm mm, yeah so there's a point like I have a, I have a tipping point in my stashes where I'm like okay this is not like I just look at this and instead of it giving me the sense of joy and possibilities, I just feel guilty or I feel overwhelmed by it or like, holy shit, I'm never going to get to all this. Like there's mm-hmm. all, there's like, I kind of do a check-in with myself on that. Um, again, not that I'm perfect on this, but that is a way. Um, and I, and I do think, you know, and I, as I've done this longer, like I, I, ha- I have to say, I have some kind of complicated feelings about this, right? Like I do depend on people in some ways, probably buying more than they need. Like that's literally... Yeah. I mean, <laughs> hard, right? It's like you said, there's no, there's no uh, ethical consumption <laughs> under capitalism, which is like a really extreme uh, version of what we're talking about here. But it is true. Like, you know, your business relies on people buying things from you. You can't go into their houses and be like, hey, you need to do this. You sure you, you need, don't this? need that? Yeah, exactly. You like maybe just think about it a little bit longer. I mean, like there's only so much you can do, but I do think, you know, and this is a conversation I've had with so many makers in our community because, you know, a lot of them rely on the sort of drop model primarily because like they can only make what they can make at the time they can make it. Right. And so it's better to just say like this Friday, 10 new things are coming yeah. than to be like, I don't know, steadily remaking things or streaming product through. And so 
you know, that does create this sense of scarcity that will make people sometimes hoard. Uh, Some of the makers in our community are like, I feel guilty about that. Like, what can I do to change it? And I'm like, you know what? You, you, you can't, right? I mean, the best that you can do is say, hey, listen, like for you, it's going to come back. Yeah. Just chill. It's going to come back. Yeah. Like think, think about it. Take the time to think about it or like tell people a week or two in advance that you're doing the drop so they have time to think about it and see the photos and really wrap their brains around it. Yeah. And that is something I started doing fairly recently is I'll do before I do shop updates. Cause like the shop update thing is just what works for me because I'm a, like as a, like my workflow, I'm a sprinter. So I like to do big projects and then just fall over and then do big projects and fall over. And so, (laughs) um, so I started doing, um, uh, Instagram TV previews of things so people can start to kind of get a sense of what's going on. I do pre-orders for sweaters quantities of yarn. So if you need more than X number of skeins, you can pre-order them and I'll dye them to order. Like it's just, yeah, it and it's it's kind of the nature of it. Um, but it is weird because like in some ways, right? Like I'm a human who lives in this world and also I'm a business who is living in this world. And right. Sometimes right. those two things are, if not in conflict, at least in a little bit of tension. Um, it's true. It's true. I mean, and that doesn't make it wrong to do it. I think that like this is another thing like, right. you know, I, I a while back when we had Jenna on the show and she was like talking about like, yeah, I want to make a profit. Yeah. And like I had to I had to come to terms with that. And it's it's true. Like yeah. listen, the profit is how you're going to grow your business, how you're going to pay yourself. Um and I think that it's been really hard for a lot of makers in our community for the past year or two because there's this push pull of like why are you trying to make a profit that's wrong and mm-hmm. like i need to exist and grow this business so that like you know because small business is the future we the only way that we get rid of all the bullshit that places like amazon or walmart or any mall, retailer at the mall are pulling right now is by you know showing them the right way to do things and shifting the market share of our spending to these smaller businesses and we have to accept that makers in our community are not, they're not doing community service for us. Right? (laughs) Right. Right. And that we don't have the resources that like Amazon does. I mean, I I think about this, about packaging. So I do use from eco and clothes, I use to mail yarn because it can't get wet because wet sheep are gross. Um, (laughs) Like really gross. I use hundred percent recycled and recyclable curbside mailers from eco and clothes. And I looked into doing compostable stuff and somebody sent me something that was like this whole thing. And it was like thousands of dollars. And they're like, you should use these. And I was like, who do you think I am? Like, I literally, I'm like one human in my garage. Like, I'm already spending way more per unit on getting slightly eco-friendly mailers, right? Like, and have done all this research and thought about it and thought it through. And so, yeah, it is... It does feel like because the big places aren't listening, sometimes that the brunt of it is like at least the responsibility falls on tiny businesses to do things exceptionally well. And yeah, sometimes yeah. we can't. It's it's hard. It's hard, right? Because like we smaller businesses have the flexibility to a certain extent, yes. but like also you can't afford to spend ten thousand dollars on packaging, <laughs> right? Right. Or the time to like, I mean, just even just all of it, the researching and making, you know, it's just, yeah, it's, it's, it's tough out there. 
Um, (laughs) (laughs) It is. It is. I mean, interestingly enough, packaging is one thing. Uh, Let's just talk about that for a moment because this is the major area of progress versus perfection and like a good example. So, uh, you know, here's the deal. Packaging is super wasteful, right? And it's like, for the most part, not recyclable. And a lot of different makers in our our community have reached out to me so many times. Like, do I have a recommendation? What do I think they can do? Like, and I tell them like, listen, I've done this project for clients in the past. And the reality is that the little bit of like, and this is all relative, more sustainable packaging, which is, it's still not like sustainable because it still requires a lot of resources to create. That stuff is so expensive, not on a per unit basis, but that if you want it, you need to buy like 10,000 units of it. And tell me, how long would it take you to go through 10,000 <laughs> mailers? Okay. Well, first of all, I'm like sitting in my office where – so I have a garage studio, like a dye studio. And then I store everything inside. And so like my office is tiny and I already like have yarn basically, like undyed yarn just like shoved in a corner. Like it's still in the box. I mean like I wouldn't even know where to put it. To say nothing of how long it would take me. Like I'm just thinking about storage. No way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Like, and I think you'd also have to like literally go to the bank and say, "Hey, can I take out a loan? Yeah, I have a small 10, business 000, loan to take buy ten thousand pieces Gosh. of packaging." And they would be like, "Are no, no, yeah. <laughs> no, ma'am, literally, literally, no." And so I think that that is something that you know it goes without saying. I think that most people who aren't in this business who don't have small businesses of their own don't know these right. things. And so they, their intentions are good. Right. Yeah. And I think, you know what, like, I guess we, we need to do our part in educating them and being like, listen, I would love to use that packaging. I have to buy 10,000 units. Like if you know other makers who want to go in on this, that would be sick. Like let's use our community yeah. as a resource. But Definitely. I like, I I just cannot emphasize that enough. Even like, for example, here's another one that I love to bring up, which is uh, the shipping is not actually free. Do you have to deal with that? Do you have people asking? So one of the things that Clothes Horse actually inspired me to do, because like that is a thing that has been a sticking point and it's just gotten worse. Like I started the business three and a half years ago and it's just gotten worse. And I was like, you know what? I saw a website, a fabric website that I order from, say, we pay your shipping. And I was like, that is far more accurate what is going on. So yeah, I, I like I, that. I changed the language on my website, like on the banner that says like, orders over X dollars, we pay your shipping. And I had so many people be like, oh my gosh, you're right. Because I was like, I pay real money to the USPS. <laughs> like somebody places an order and I like give them $7 or whatever, right? Like it's not free. Even to me, like I give them real money and just changing that language. Like I, and my customers are really, really spectacular. Um, I, they, the people who stick around seem to understand what I'm doing. And I'm also very, very clear. Like it's kind of an obsession with me that I'm transparent and clear about stuff. Mm -hmm. And so I haven't had quite the external pressure on free shipping, but I definitely have internal pressure because I'm like, yeah, but like I get, I like buying stuff and getting free shipping. Like I will absolutely, I am so that person who will like spend $20 more to get $3 worth of free shipping. That is me. 
Um, and so not so much anymore, but I do, I definitely, I definitely I mean, feel that. We're all guilty of that, oh right? Gosh, we all have. Mind yeah. When you, when you start to think, okay, like, wait a minute, like envision the journey of the thing you're about to buy. You're like, oh yeah, shipping, it has a value because yes. you think of shipping as an annoying, like fine that you have to pay for shopping almost. Yes. Like when you like, okay, yes. When you're getting speeding ticket, I understand that the fine is to discourage you from doing it again, right? Like that is the value of it, I guess. But the reality is it's such an epic bummer to get a speeding ticket because you're like, there's all this money I'm about to give away that doesn't actually do anything for yes. me, right? And I feel like we feel that way about yeah. shipping. Like it's a fine we pay for shopping. And what we really need to realize is we're actually paying for the very magical service yeah. of having stuff from far away that wouldn't normally be available yes. to us in our area come to our house. And I, I just like... I'm going to repeat that on every episode for the rest of the year, I swear, because shipping is not free. It is not free for anyone. And particularly demanding free shipping from small businesses yeah. is exceptionally bad. Like before you and I started report recording, we we were talking about how like everybody wants everything to be Amazon, yep. right? Even though we know that Amazon sucks, right? Like we all know that, right? I'm I'm saying that to the flex <laughs> we, right? We all know that Amazon is an unethical, wasteful company, right? But yet we still expect mm -hmm. that kind of construct from small brands, meaning we want free shipping and we want stuff to ship immediately. We want to order it today and have it tomorrow. And it's weird that we can't disconnect those expectations yeah. from all of the other bad ethics that we don't like about Amazon. And we need, we need, we need to do that. But when we talk about shipping particularly being impactful for small brands, it's because shipping is expensive no matter who you are, but the smaller you are, the more yes. expensive it is. So like Amazon is definitely paying far less. Let's say you ordered a pound of yarn from Amazon, right? And you ordered a pound of yarn from Amazon. Kathleen, even though like I don't think you sell yarn by the pound, but let's say you do. I don't, but you can order up to it. You can order as much yarn as you want. That right. So let's say you were, okay. So both of them are shipping a pound of yarn. It's the same weight, the same box. I'm gonna tell you right now, Kathleen's gonna pay way more to send that to you than Amazon is. Well, for one, Amazon might be a bad example because Amazon has slowly been controlling the entire yep. delivery chain. And that is, you know, how do they do that? By not offering benefits to their workers, squeezing them on productivity and wages. And so they get like the cheapest shipping you could get. But even if you were like, let's think about someone who doesn't control the shipping chain, like Joanne. Right. Order a pound of yarn from Joanne. Joanne is paying less because they are able to negotiate lower shipping costs. Even for a company like that, the shipping sucks. It is a drain. Yep. You know? And so like, I think that no matter what, we are paying for free shipping. I know that because I've worked on the P&L for smaller companies who are trying to make the shipping work. And I'm going to tell you, you, the customer, are paying for the shipping. So just pay for the shipping. Well, and the other thing is I feel like I can't – I mean, I don't actually – like I build in packaging and stuff to my prices a little bit. But mm -hmm. like literally, if you pay for shipping on my site, that is literally the dollar amount that is going directly to the USPS or UPS. Yeah, or you're actually underpaying and like it doesn't yeah and it doesn't include because I just don't think I could raise my prices enough to make the shipping logistics actually 
Like I try not to think about it, frankly. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But the, also the labor of actually packaging up things, right? That's another thing I just did for the last year ever. I did advent calendars, yarn advent calendars, which I'm never doing again. And the pack, just the packing on that, the, the time it's insane. And like my stuff's not even breakable, right? The great thing about yarn is like you can kind of shove it in in a miller. Like it's not going to break. It's not going to get crunched or anything. But still, just like the process of wrapping it and then worrying about it. And sometimes I end up eating the cost of extra insurance because if it's a big order. I mean, it's just like it's just horrible. The shipping, the shipping and logistics thing is probably the worst part of my job. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. I mean, it's like funny the amount of time and hand wringing in my career I've had around shipping for like the past five, 10 years. But like the early years of my career when still most stuff was bought in person, like a vast majority, it was not something I thought about at all unless a shipment arrived at the warehouse and was super crunched up. But like, I specifically remember when I was working for a startup in the Pacific Northwest and I rolled out this big gift assortment of like candles and mugs and things like that. And they were selling like hotcakes. Uh, the problem was they were getting completely destroyed yep. in shipping 50% oh, of the time. Gosh. Oh gosh. Yeah. And it was just like, whoa, okay, like this is something else we need to think about. Like maybe people shouldn't buy candles and mugs on the internet. Yeah. You know, because they need more packaging, which is more wasteful, right? They are more likely to break in transit. And then there's like complete loss, you yeah. know, of like resources. And, yeah. and, you know, they also cost a lot more to ship. Yep. Um, because they're heavier and more fragile and there's all that extra packaging and like it's just it's like we all need to I don't know. I guess I will say when I started Close Horse, it was because I realized that people literally had no idea yeah. of all the like uh the inner workings that get stuff to you, right? Yeah. And I think we just all need to continue to debunk the I don't know, just illusion of convenience and Amazonification of the world. Like we 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 cannot have the same expectations that we have for Amazon for every other maker and brand out there because Amazon is unethical. Right. And that's why they can do it, right? Like that's why they can do it. Yeah. I, I mean, I, once again, going back to like the good vibes that come from shopping small, like sure, you might get that thing you ordered from Amazon in a day, but like at what emotional yeah. cost? Like, does it feel good to have that thing? I, yeah, I, I always, like, I started thinking because what I make brings me so much joy. I've started thinking about, like, the cost of human misery. <laughs> like, yeah. what, put in this thing that I bought, like, which is one of the reasons that whenever I do, I can, I do try to shop small businesses, right? Like, and, and granted, like, I am a cranky human. And sometimes, like, there is swearing in your yard. There just is. It's, it literally says it on my label. <laughs> um, but thinking about like the difference in that. So even when it's frustrating, like everything I make is made with joy and care and love and also is very much my decision, right? Like I make this decision to, I make the decision to do this. Like there's consent in it versus other things. And you're like, what, what, what kind of human, like what, is there human suffering in this thing? And like, is that, is that worth it? Is this thing worth that kind of human suffering? Yeah, it really, I mean, these are the things I think about. And, you know, like when you were initially like, I don't know, like I used nylon yarn or whatever you were upset about. I <laughs> was like, dude, I literally worked in fast fashion. 
like my entire career, you know, like surrounded by product that was made with human suffering, you know, like it is, it's something that I'm going to be unpacking for the rest of my life. You know, like there is a strange trauma in knowing that you've been a part of that machine. Um, Never mind the actual trauma of working in that industry. And, you know, like the best thing we can do is continue to move forward and do better and help other people do better. And I am always going to be a huge proponent of making your own everything, which you can, right? Like if you have the if you have the ability to learn, if you have access to a sewing machine, if you have access to knitting needles, like it has, because it has not only revolutionized how I think about sort of my own clothing, it has also revolutionized how I think about just sort of interconnected economies. It mm-hmm. changed, like it's changed so much of how I see the world. Um, it's changed. So like when I source things, I try to buy them from small businesses. So like I try to buy my fabric as much as I can from smaller businesses. Um, and so it really like there's just this total different, it's like an ecosystem and it's totally different. And it has made me more thoughtful. It has made me more aware of things. It has made me just want to do better, not just for like the world, but also for myself. Like it's really empowering to opt out of any of these systems that you can. And right. It, and if you can't, that's, that's okay too. Absolutely. There's no shame in that, right? None. But for those of us who have the privilege, whether it's time, money, location, skills, whatever, to do that, the best thing we can do is help others yep. be able to do that too. Absolutely. So one last thing I want to talk about mm-hmm. is um, I know, you know, we've talked about yarn hoarding, fabric hoarding, craft supply hoarding. Um, one way that we can make, a, you know, our, I don't know, our craft uh, more sustainable is by getting our unused materials back into the system and making them available to people who can't generally afford that yes. stuff. Are there places you would recommend as resources for, you know, extra yarn, second, I, I hesitate to call it secondhand yarn because it's probably totally unused yarn that's been sitting in someone's house. It's like new with tags yarn. It is new with tags (laughs) yarn. Yes. So this is something that I actually really do appreciate. And I actually need to do this myself soon is a lot of just regular old knitters. And a lot of this happens on Instagram. They'll have what are called D stashes. Like you're cleaning out your stash and it's a good way to get really good quality yarn. Cause like sometimes like, I don't know. I mean, we've all bought stuff. You're like, Ooh, shiny. And then you don't use it and it sits there and it, you know, (laughs) so that can be a really good way. Um, so there's people on Instagram who do it. I think there's some Etsy shops that are yarn D stashes. Um, Uh, although Etsy is complicated as we all know. Right. And another one is the website Ravelry, which is like the sort of, everyone used to call it the Facebook of the knitting of like the yarn world, which uh, not quite, but <laughs> I mean, it has had some you. complications as of late. We shall say it has some accessibility issues, but Ravelry is kind <laughs> of like the go-to for a lot of yarn crafters, and there's some D stashes on there, so there can be some really good ways to get that fabric. I don't quite know as much about because I am fairly new to that, um, but I know that they're like, I mean, Facebook Marketplace, like the kind of regular, like places where you always find secondhand stuff. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And you can get like the good thing about D-stashes is you can get really, really nice yarn. You can get, you know, and it can be a good way to sort of pick up stuff. Um, I also know there are a fair number of dyers, and this is the thing I need to do because I just need to, is 
you can sometimes get seconds. So like sometimes stuff just does not like I'm literally looking at my wall of uh of stuff that did not quite go like I wanted it to. And so sometimes um, independent dyers will have a second section and they'll have those at a discount, which it's still beautiful yarn. It's like, I mean, my stuff, it just is like one little place doesn't look like I wanted it to. So that can be a good place too. Um, so yeah, yeah. There's, there's lots of stuff out there. D stashes are great. And there's not, it's interesting in the yarn world, there's not like any stigma attached to that. We're just like, Ooh, we got something else. Yay. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there shouldn't be, right? So that's, that's great. That's great. I mean, I like I haven't bought a brand new craft supply in so long because I can't believe how much yeah. I can find secondhand and it's really exciting. And I'm sure a lot of that stuff ended up secondhand because of all those deals, deals, deals and whatnot. Yeah. But uh, I'm I'm reaping the benefits. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, there's definitely there's definitely good stuff out there. Totally. And I would also just say if your city or town has a creative reuse, I totally have, man, especially if you're thinking something more abstract with your yarn where maybe you're fine with a bunch of different yarns being in something, uh, you can really clean up for very little money there. Same with fabric. I think there's a really good one. I think it's in Nashville. There's a couple. We do not have one in Atlanta that I know of. That doesn't mean we don't. Bummer. Someone needs to start that. Mm, Um, Yeah. Yeah. I I can't say. We have an amazing one here in Lancaster um, that is actually like, yes, there's fabric, there's yarn, there's sewing patterns, but man, there is so much other cool stuff. Like there's tons of secondhand postcards and scrapbooking supplies and papers and just all kinds of stuff that like gets your creativity yeah. going just being in there. Um, and yeah, anyway, if you have one in your area, can't recommend it enough for anything you're working on. I love this. All right. Well, I think that's all we had to talk about today. Yay. Thank you so much, Kathleen. This was so super fun. Well, thank you. Isn't Kathleen the best? I told you. Okay, maybe I didn't tell you this, but I heavily implied that you were going to love her. I'm so glad you had a chance to meet her. You can find her and her beautiful yarns at republicaunicornia.com or on the gram as republica underscore unicornia underscore yarns. I love an underscore. Do you love an underscore? I like saying underscore. Anyway, I'm going to link to all of that in the show notes, of course, but please go check it out. Music has been a cornerstone of my life for as as long as I can remember. I, I know that this is something a lot of you can relate to. When I was a small child, I listened to my mom's records. Yes, records. LPs, I believe they were called are still called. <laughs> anyway, I listened to these records on repeat. The Carpenters, Queen, the Bee Gees. My mom had a lot of 70s music. Meanwhile, my grandma had every country record from like the 50s to the 80s or so it seemed. Just a massive library of country music. So I listened to country music kind of nonstop at her house. A steady diet of Patsy Cline and Loretta Lynn, Kenny Rogers, Conway Twitty, of course, Dolly Parton. I got my first boombox in third grade, and soon I was collecting and swapping tapes, CDs, eventually, and very briefly, mini discs. If you can remember those, raise your hand. I'm high-fiving you with my mind right now. (laughs) Then I was swapping 
MP3s, then I was collecting records. And music has always been in the background of everything I did, you know? My core taste these days tends to be like stoner metal and Fleetwood Mac, weird psychedelic 60s garage rock, underground hip-hop, disco, Japanese pop. I mean, I guess I kind of like anything, and I'll listen to just about anything, anytime. But one band that everyone loved for a long time, they still love them. I don't know why I'm saying past tense. But especially the art school types that I was surrounded by when I was younger, they're like, they really loved this band, was Radiohead. And I had no particular feeling about them, you know? I was aware of Radiohead's existence. I read gushy pieces about them in music magazines, but I never thought like, oh, I, I should go buy that album. I was forced to listen to this band, Radiohead, by overly exuberant fans who I guess were also friends of mine while we did drugs off of secondhand coffee tables that had once belonged to their owner's parents. They would force me to listen to Radiohead while we did drugs in these tiny apartments on these secondhand coffee tables. Radiohead was in the ether surrounding me. People were excited about it, but I, I had no feelings about them either way. There was this moment, months after my partner Ryan had died, when my whole life had been turned upside down and inside out in the span of just the few moments that it had taken Ryan to slip away from this world to somewhere else. That had happened so fast. I take comfort in believing that it happened so fast. For months afterwards, I had been swimming in what felt like a strange syrupy jelly. I know this like gelatinous ooze made of grief. This grief was no longer a feeling I could experience, but rather just a place that I lived. A place separate from the world and the people around me, or maybe a place that separated me from the world and the people around me, because I certainly felt alone and isolated far away from everyone and everything. If I could describe it to you using something else you may or may not be familiar with, I felt like, this is a deep cut, are you ready? I felt like the cherry in the center of those Celia's chocolate cordial candies that my grandma Sandy loved so much. My grandma Sandy loved those cherry cordial candies, which to be fair, I wouldn't throw one out of bed. She loved them so much that one day she ate an entire box in one sitting, which was bad because she's diabetic and she ended up in the emergency room. I felt like one of those cherry cordials, just surrounded by so much that separated me from everything else. One night I was at Barnes & Noble where I proudly served Starbucks coffee I remember I was specifically eating an expired panini sandwich in the cafe where I worked. And this song came on that I maybe had heard before. Surely I'd heard it before, but I'd never really heard it before. And it, it penetrated that sadness syrup that surrounded me. 
The lyrics spoke to me. It was a clearly despondent man who was just singing over and over again, I'm not here. This isn't happening. This was the Radiohead track, How to Disappear Completely, from the album Kid A, which I think came out around 2000. Once again, I didn't care about that album, but this moment hearing this song from this band that I didn't really think much about, this was where I'd been for so long. It was, I mean, we've all had those moments where you hear a song and you're like, oh, whoa, this song is about my life, or I feel this, or it reminds me of this person or this situation. I've, I've always said that I have a bad relationship experience that fits every single song in the Fleetwood Mac catalog. I stand by that. Maybe that's a whole future podcast right there. <laughs> anyway, here I was hearing this Radiohead song, a band that I don't care about. And those lyrics, I'm not here. This isn't happening. Like this, this is where I had been living. This, this was what the sadness syrup was really made from. For months, I'd only been able to get to sleep by telling myself that nothing that had seemed to happen in the past few months had actually happened. I would convince myself of this, that this was all just a weird misunderstanding, a a movie I'd watched and gotten too sucked into, a strange bad daydream that I'd had and just hadn't distanced myself from yet. I would... I would convince myself of that finally, and that would allow me to drift off to sleep to a better place where Ryan would visit me at different places all around Chicago. You know, the L station at North and Clybourne. We were meeting there at least once a week while I was asleep. It was always nighttime, never in the daytime, but it was never cold. It was never raining. All in all, a good time to be at the L station at North and Clybourne. We would meet at the Caribou Coffee on Clark where my roommate Nate had worked for years and had, they had these really great berry crunch muffins that he would bring home for me at the end of the night. I don't even think that Ryan and I had ever been there together, but it was a place we met in our dreams. We would meet at the upstairs video store at Earwax in Wicker Park and laugh about the time the only thing left to rent had been Deuce Bigelow, Male Gigolo, and we had really watched it or at least 60% of it. This was what got me through so many nights. But of course, I would, I would wake up back in a world where, in fact, everything that had happened, well, I mean, this isn't going to surprise you, had actually happened. This was, in fact, happening, and I was really here. There was no real escape from that. And this realization that I could not rewind the tape and do it all differently or delete the last few months of my brain or wake myself up from this. This was very hard for me to accept. I just did not know how I could keep going. Comfort was very hard to find. The motivation to continue was very very hard to find sometimes. Grief never ends. And some of you are listening to this and nodding your head because you know grief never ends. You never 
wake up one day and say, whoa, hey, guess what? I'm, I'm better now. I'm no longer sad. In fact, everything is great. No, the loss, the pure lack of someone you have loved that you continue to love, no matter who else you have loved since then, this all lives with you forever. But what happens is that you learn to cope with it. You learn to live a new way. You discover that you will go on and grief will always, always be along for the ride. But so many other things will also be joining you for the journey. In the days after Ryan died, when I I couldn't sleep, I couldn't even bear to turn off the lights to try to go to sleep because I couldn't be alone in the dark. In those days, those hazy, it's just such, I can't even remember them more. It's just a dull ache. I went to AC Moore and I bought an embroidery kit. I hadn't done anything needleworky since I was a junior Girl Scout. So what is that, third, fourth grade? But this, this felt like what I needed. There was comfort in the simple act of counting stitches, the repetitive nature of moving the needle in and out of the fabric, of following a pattern and matching floss colors. When I finished that kit, I bought an even bigger one and another one after that. Soon I wasn't even buying a kit. I was buying a book and following that pattern. I kept stitching and stitching until my eyes were so tired each day that I had no choice but to turn off the lights and get some sleep. I was rejoining life just a little bit at a time. At some point, I decided, okay, I've done enough needlework. Now I'm going to learn how to knit. So I bought a book at Barnes & Noble. By now, I was working there, proudly serving Starbucks coffee. And I went to E.C. Moore, and I bought a pound of blue yarn for five, six bucks. I definitely didn't have a coupon. Maybe it was nine. I don't know. But I proceeded to teach myself to knit It was like Cookie Monster Blue yarn, in case you were wondering. All my early projects were sloppy, full of mistakes. It didn't matter because it was the comfort, the meditative nature of counting, knit to, purl to, on repeat. That little clicking of the needles. Somewhere along the line, I began to come back to life again. What what was happening was really happening, and I was really here. I met new people, I moved across the country, I fell in love with other people, I built a career, I traveled around the world, and still that entire time, making things, knitting, embroidery, cross-stitch, even mending my own clothes, these became the self-care that helped me through a lot of anxiety, a lot of heartbreaks, and just that grief that never left me but instead was just joined by new grief. Making things is a form of self-care, and it can be this deeply personal political act, right? Making something over buying something, this is a big deal in our throwaway culture. I'm telling you this story 
because I want to remind you to care for yourself, to give yourself those moments of meditation, of peace, of stepping out of the scary world we live in right now and taking that time to rebuild and rejuvenate yourself. I experience grief for the planet, its people, its animals and plants and so much more every single day. I have had days, so have you, where I have wanted to say, this isn't happening. I'm not here. None of this is real. There are moments when I wonder, how can I handle much more? Then someone on Instagram is a jerk to me and I feel like I'm just pushed so close to the edge. The edge of what? I don't know what the edge is, but I know it's not good and I know it involves giving up. When I feel myself getting there to that point where I'm like, I, I don't want to care anymore. I don't want to try anymore. I take time to do things that give me that same comfort that knitting and needlepoint have given me for so many years. I make necklaces. I care for my houseplants. I arrange faux fruit. I do weird Photoshop projects. I read vintage cookbooks. Whatever it takes to just be alone with myself and think about something else. This morning, I listened to a story on NPR about the Resilient Activist, an organization that seeks to help activists cope with the enormity of the world, of their work, of the challenges, and the exhaustion of it all. We're not meant to be martyrs. In fact, we have to care for ourselves in order to keep the mission going. I'm going to share a link in the show notes to Resilience and the Five Essentials for a Resilient World. It's a list from the Resilient Activist about ways we can provide self-care for ourselves to help us cope with the grief of a struggling, imperiled, unjust, infuriating, ugh, world. Creativity and making things are a part of that. Crafting is self-care. Sewing is self-care. Needlework is self-care. So is drawing, gardening, painting, cooking, reading. These are ways we keep ourselves strong and ready to fight the fight. Not only must we care for one another as we fight for change, we have to care for ourselves. We have a lot to do. We have a lot of people to educate, a lot of emails to write. We got all those phone calls we got to dial. We have changes to make together. And if we're wearing a cute scarf that we made to help us cope with it all, well, that's just even better. We've got to take care of ourselves. Thanks for listening to another episode of Close Horse. Written, researched, hosted, and edited by me, that's right, Amanda Lee McCarty. If you like what you're hearing, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Maybe consider subscribing. And of course, tell your friends. Thanks, as always, to my other half, Dustin Travis White, for our music and audio support. Bye. (laughs) 